playing golf around twilight and there's nobody out there. That's a kind of a special time. Sometimes I don't enjoy it when it's really busy and stacked up. But if you, if I can catch the golf course at the right time in the evening and there's nobody around, it's just me, it's just mine and sun's going down and the shadows are there and the deer prancing across the fairways, you know, just, it's pretty magical. Like that That's the way my childhood was, too. If I didn't have a golf club in my hand, I had a fishing rod. So um, pretty, pretty good way to spend time. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you from Lexington, Kentucky. And what you've just heard is the voice of my guest for episode 12, Golf architect Drew Rogers, ASGCA. In that one short thought, he summed up what has become my most common and, frankly, my preferred golf experience more often than not. I love Drew's perspective, not only on golf course architecture and design, but also on the game itself and the business of golf. He was one of the first golf course design people that I found and followed on Twitter, primarily because he's from the same part of the country as my father and he's an alumnus of my beloved University of Kentucky. But it turns out that he's played a role in creating several of my favorite courses in Kentucky, both through his own firm and as an associate in Arthur Hill's firm before that. Champions Trace, Keen Run, Persimmon Ridge, University Club of Kentucky, the club at Old Stone. These aren't nationally renowned courses that everyone would have heard of, but they are championship caliber courses that blend strategy with fun and reach unique and challenging in their own way. I've played all these courses, and the only characteristic besides Drew's attention to detail that you'll find in across the board is that they're in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. After speaking with Drew, it's easy to understand why each course developed its own identity and feel. When asked about a reading list for my own personal golf architecture 101, it was Drew that turned me on to the classics, the writings of George Thomas, Robert Hunter, Weathered and Simpson, Dr. McKenzie. You may have seen Drew featured on the Architecture Roundtable over at the Fried Egg, or listened to his incredibly engaging episode of Feed the Ball with Derek Duncan, or seen him or read of him and many other outlets in the architectural press or on social media. In those forums, he really gets into the finer points of design and strategy and golf course architecture. Our conversation isn't so much about the merits of individual golf courses or particular designs he's fond of, but rather is the chat more focused on the business and the processes of the golf course architecture industry. Drew's been in the industry long enough to have lived through a time that the big design firms rose to their zenith and then fell somewhat out of favor as the design-build business model began disrupting those traditional notions of how courses were conceived and brought to life. He gave me roughly an hour of his time, very graciously so, but I could have continued chatting with him for several hours more. I do hope to have him back on the show sometime, and maybe we'll explore the mysteries of the architect's bag of tricks and how they make golfers do and see what they want us to do and see instead of what would be best for our individual golf games and golf scores. For now, I'm thrilled Drew entertained my curiosities of the parts of the golf course design industry that don't show up in the coffee table books. It was an easy yet fascinating conversation for me to be a part of. 
So I hope it's one that you'll find interesting and entertaining. It was also fun to hear him discuss his latest project, taking on a role with a little-known course called Pine Hills in Wisconsin. Drew's enthusiasm for this project comes through pretty clearly. Frankly, it's nice to listen to a veteran architect get legitimately excited about a course that he gets to work on and work with. Before we get to our conversation, a quick reminder that the Blind Shots podcast is a member of the Talking Golf Network of Shows. As always, I encourage you to check out the full portfolio of shows over at TalkingGolf.com. Surely, while you're there, you'll find something that you'll enjoy beyond just the Blind Shots podcast. You can interact with this show on Twitter at BlindShotsPod. You can find my thoughts and writings online at OneBeardedGolfer.com. You can interact with me directly on Twitter at the number OneBeardedGolfer. There's a link to Drew's webpage, jdrewrogers.com, in the show notes. Take a second to check it out, because if you do, you'll see that he's put some thought and some time into presenting his ideas and his philosophies, his influences, and his diverse experiences in both new course design and construction, and his extensive renovation work. Finally, before we get started, a reminder that this podcast is sponsored by me and only me. In addition to playing, talking, and writing about golf, I'm a licensed Kentucky realtor with Rector Hayden Realtors. I work both with homeowners buying and selling their homes and also with investors and businesses on commercial properties here in central Kentucky. You can find me and find all about it at davidhill.rhr.com. So now, without any further delay, here's my conversation with architect Drew Rogers. I figured that out pretty quickly in the practice of law. I figured out how much I didn't know. Um, and I was just thinking this morning, getting ready for the, for our discussion, that there, you know, my introduction to you, um, to your work, was playing some Kentucky courses that you had helped design. You know, we're, we're blessed with what I like to call some of the really good Arthur Hills courses here in Kentucky that I've had, uh, that you've had an influence on. And one of the first questions I, I reached out to you on Twitter is like, what's the... What's the Arch Golf Architecture 101 reading list? And you were kind enough to give me some of the class, you know, the names of the classics because I didn't know. You know, I'm coming to golf architecture purely in a a kind of selfish mode. Like I want to be able to look at a hole and understand now that I'm I'm getting better and have an idea where the ball might go. Okay, where should it go? Where shouldn't it go? And and what are the the kind of downhole implications? So you gave me those classics, and I was I was thinking. You know, that's not too dissimilar from law school. You know, law school, they don't, you know what they don't teach you in law school? They don't teach you how to be a lawyer. They teach you what the technical, man, you know, they give you the technical manuals and you talk about those ideas. They, you know, there is, it's not lawyer school and it's not called that for a reason. And I would think very much your profession has, a, you know, I don't know that they're in landscape architecture classes if there's a client management seminar. Um or senior oh, thesis on that. Um, so that's kind of, you know, I, I, some of the things I wanted to talk to you about, you know, aren't necessarily what you would put in your book as far as your greatest hits and things like that. Uh, but yeah, that's fine. That's great. Kind of the process. Now I'm obviously a fan of yours because you are a graduate of my beloved university of Kentucky <laughs> coming right. from, coming from downstate Illinois, which is an area my family can trace its roots back through. How'd you end up in Lexington? Well, you know, the first thing was I wanted to get away from home. So, you know, that that's how Kentucky got on my list. And, and it was 
Kentucky was a place we'd always traveled as a family and spent time in, and we had some family roots there. But, um, you know, I also was attracted to Lexington. I liked the town. I liked the community. Um, the university felt good to me. It felt like the right size. It had tradition and spirit to it, which was important to me. And then the landscape architecture program um, was really solid. And that's ultimately where I wanted to head. I wanted to get involved somewhere that had a, a, a really solid LA program. And the size of that program was, it seemed like a good fit. Okay. You know, so, so many of the schools, they get really big and they, they're a little bit suffocating and the size of UK, the size of the program, the intimacy of the program and, um, you know, the, the professors and, and sort of the one-on-one -on -one opportunities that felt like were going to be, um, prevalent proved to be so. So it, it was a great choice for me. And, um, you know, it's only two and a half hours from home too, just far enough, but not so far that I can't get home. So, um, it, it was perfect. I, I would go back and do it again in a heartbeat. Good, good. That that's that's a more positive reason. You know, I was while I was in school, we had a lot of people from Illinois that would come down because it was an inexpensive school. You know, we had a whole contingent of my group of friends from Rockford. You know, up uh, up further north, but. When they looked at in-state tuition at uh, Illinois or, or you know Chicago, and then they looked at out-of-state tuition at Kentucky 20 years ago, it was a, you know it was a coin flip. Um, yeah, I wasn't going to bring that up, but that was <laughs> that was a factor too. It's like, gosh, I can go out of state for what I can do in-state and go to like the U of I or something like that. So it was a great value uh, on top of everything else, and oh. and I wouldn't say that the value. Um, it, it, it was like some sort of cheap education. I think I got a damn good education at UK, and it just happened to be a, a, a tremendous value at the same time. So, yeah, no, I, I make no apologies. We, we are a low cost provider of of several things. Uh, we just don't advertise them real well because we want to keep them for ourselves. It's been my working theory in my forty years of uh, my Kentucky living. Uh, now, you spent the early part of your career or a big chunk of it working in Arthur Hill's firm, correct? Did you go straight from school to working for his his outfit? I, I basically did. You know, I, I graduated in 91 from UK, and that was a bit of a dip in the economy. We were in a recession, and so um, coming out of school – it wasn't a target-rich environment for a job necessarily. We we were kind of in a lull, um, especially when it when it was connected to um, you know land development. You know everything was kind of in a holding pattern for for a period of time. But um, you know, so I, I worked on my country club's ground crew for pretty much like six months. I, I worked all summer and then they kept me on through the winter and I did all kinds of crazy things, um, being on staff in the winter. Yeah. That makes and you then, one of the chosen uh, few. Yeah, no, I was really fortunate, you know, and I'm out there doing tree studies and trimming trees and all kinds of stuff that you can only do in the winter time. 
but it was a great experience and, and I, I benefited uh, greatly from that opportunity. But, you know, come spring, the phone rang and um, it, I did sort of have a connection with the folks at Arthur Hills. There was um, ironically a, a, a fellow that uh, was a senior at UK when I was first year and he was interning with Art Hills. And his whole deal was he wanted to be a golf course architect, too. So we were kindred spirits, and we kind of hung together, and I checked in on him pretty often, naturally. And, you know, he he kept my name in, in line, and, and an opportunity opened up. And um, uh, a fellow on art staff was getting ready to move on and and open his own wing and, and fly, and so this, you know, this opportunity opened up, which that's kind of what it takes. You, you just kind of have to be in the right spot at the right time, know the right people in this business. And I just got lucky, you know, and I, I, I got to come in and interview for the job. And there were several, several other applicants and I, I did well, I guess I, I convinced them and and. um you know, I was working for peanuts, but I didn't care. You know, I broke in. That was my shot. I got to take it. And um, so I didn't know anything about Toledo, Ohio at the time. But again, I didn't really care. Like pack up bags, fill up the truck. Let's go. I'm I'm out of here. And um, so that's what happened. And um, I started working in early 92 for art. And, you know, that just turned out to be um, an amazing run um, of opportunity for me. I mean, I got to cut my teeth under a, a big umbrella there, and a lot of opportunities came my way. So, you know. That is a – I'm never surprised by how much luck is involved in the story. You know, I'm a pretty faithful listener to Derek Duncan's program, and so many guys say it – you know, they caught – the names that we know are people that caught a break or were in the right place and had the right connection at the right time, almost you know, by happenstance. You know, a very similar story to yours um, for what you just described there. So you're walking in in the early 90s. You're walking into a pretty good size. You mentioned a big umbrella. What yeah. does the, you know, there at kind of the height, and this is all well before the sort of the the quote-unquote design-build revolution that we've been experiencing for the last decade or two. But what what did a big firm like Art Hill's firm look like? Well, how did that structure kind of work uh, for the architects? You know, you said you, you were ground level, you know, maybe one step up from picking rocks in a bucket uh, <laughs> on, on the way in. But what did that look like? Um, yeah, well, I mean, you, you cut your teeth real quick. I mean, you do anything they ask ask you to do uh, it, you do a lot of drafting and a lot of color renderings and a lot of grunt work you roll a lot of plans and you know run a lot of prints and run errands and everything else that needs to be done in the office uh, you're low man on the totem pole but it, you know there's a lot of movement in a firm like that where ultimately guys just keep moving they keep climbing the ladder and so the opportunity ultimately if, if you keep your head in it um it will come your way if you're patient enough and i guess i was patient enough i mean um it, it wasn't that long before i really started sinking my teeth into some plans 
and, um, you know, doing grading plans for Arthur, interpreting his concepts and, and turning, you know, scribbles into meaningful lines and, and getting involved in projects. Um, you know, right out of the gate, you know, I wasn't out on site a lot. I was relegated to doing a lot of office work. But that's sort of the way that all works. You're there to learn. You're there to provide. You're um, it's not an opportunity to express yourself right out of the gate, you know, and that's important. A lot of guys, they I think they dream about being an architect and they think right out of the gate they get to do what they want to do and show what they're thinking. Well, you need to learn first and it just so happened that I got that opportunity and uh, I, I just was content to climb the ladder and, and wait for my time. So what you just described there is very similar to the traditional kind of big law firm model as well. You know, the associate comes in and, and the phrase is carries the attorney's bag for a couple of years. Um, was there for the new guy in on those slots kind of at the ground level? Would you how would you describe kind of the level of mentorship I guess, or were you expected to kind of just by osmosis pick up, here's how we do things and, and, you know, kind of mold yourself in that model? Yeah. Uh, good question. Because the firm was so busy, I mean, um, Arthur was on the road a lot. You know, he'd kind of sweep in and throw his scribbles at you and review things, and then he was off again um, because there was – there was a a blossoming boom uh, in, in the golf business that w- that was ramping up at that time, and so you know I didn't get a lot of one on one time with Arthur initially, and I think what I where I learned most was from other guys in the office and guys that had been there longer. You know, you got to go sit with them and ask them questions and, and see how they approach things. And so I, I learned a lot from really everybody around me. And, you know, then when you did get your opportunities with, with Arthur, you know, you try to take advantage of them and you try and soak up as much as you could. But a lot of times he just didn't have time for you. I mean, we're running a big business and it was just, like I said, it, it, it was becoming so busy we were in such a mode of production that there just wasn't a lot of time to get tutored along. You had to either jump on board and, 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 and get involved in it or, you know, you just get left behind. And so, you know, I, I, I guess, uh, ultimately I, I was able to jump on and, um, the opportunities just gradually came. So, well, speaking of the opportunities, that's another thing I'm curious about of the kind of the senior associates, the guys that you're talking about that you learned under and, you know, you eventually became one of the, the senior guys in the room. How far along that process or does it ever happen in a big firm like that where you transition from just doing, you know, trying to crank out the work and keep up to having your own kind of rainmaking potentials, you know, develop a work pipeline or does everything truly flow from the top in a firm like that? Another good question. Uh, certainly rainmaking 
you don't you don't get assigned that position. I mean, anybody can rain make any time uh, the opportunity presents. Um, and and I had my share even when I was young in the firm. Uh, you take advantage of contacts. Everybody has contacts. Everybody has people they know, um, whether it's family or friends or just connections uh, that are that are made throughout your life. And if if you foster them well, and they know what you're doing, and you're able to make that connection with them and keep it, you just never know when the phone's going to ring. And I don't know. I had maybe eight, 10 opportunities that came my way while I was with the firm. And I brought those opportunities to the firm and those turned into Arthur Hills projects. They're not Drew Rogers projects. They're Arthur Hills moniker, you know, that's, um, but that's part of what you do in a firm. You're, you're there to learn and you're there to help and you're, you're part of a team. And ultimately, that guy that's on on the sign out front and on the letterhead, it's going to be his. Right. That's just what you that's what you have to deal with. And that doesn't set well with some people. But look, if you're patient, you'll get your shots, you know. Right. So, um, yeah, that was never I wasn't created in that mold uh, within my professions. But I understand that it it's. Yeah, the idea of the firm and you, you've got to set aside a little bit of ego, I guess, uh, of your own creativity. The, the fun conversations I have with some, some young architects that I've gotten to know is they, once they kind of get out on their own or, or have their own project, boy, they want to throw everything they've ever learned into that first nine holes or that first 18 holes. I, I had this discussion with a, a friend that they're working on a project here in Kentucky. And they go back and forth and like, well, you know, we're going to do this type of green, but we're going to reverse it and, you know, take this template and turn it upside down. And then they, they step back and say, now, wait a second, that's going to be, you know, that'll be the most insane overthought golf hole ever. So they, they kind of have to wait there. They're like, no, we're just going to do, we're going to, you know, kind of pull the reins back. So I understand that, that idea. Now, you know, you came from the, the landscape architecture side, the planning side was, driving a bulldozer or putting a shovel in the ground ever part of your skill set? It really wasn't, David. Um, it, it just wasn't the way things were done at that time. And, you know, I'm a product of the system that I came up in. Right. And we were very focused on doing detailed plans. And when I say detailed, they're pretty damn detailed. Um, we know where every spoonful of dirt is is going and we know where water is going to go all the time and how the whole thing is going to fit together. We'd spend a lot of time visualizing what, what it is we want. Um, and so, you know, there's lots of ways to do this, mm -hmm. to, to build a golf course, to design and build a golf course. And none of them are the perfect way. They're all typically pretty successful. Um, it's just, some guys are more comfortable doing it one way over another, and that doesn't make them right or wrong or indifferent. It, it, um, but getting back to your point, no, I, I never w really was on equipment, and it just the opportunity wasn't ever there for that, and that was not a trend. And, right. I, you know, you look at where, where the profession has gone, and you see so many talented guys out there today producing 
spectacular work. Um, and, and they're operators, you know, they do shape their own stuff. And, but I think that's been a product of the evolution of, of where we were and where we've come, you know, you've got the whole profession contracted, you know, and it squeezed tight when we went through 08, 09 and 10, when the big firms just couldn't exist anymore. There wasn't enough work because, because of the real estate crash. So all those opportunities just shrank and, and so did the big firms. And, and so, all the talent in these larger firms had to spray out. And, you know, if you're going to make it, you, here's your shot, but you got to go do it on your own. So how are you going to do it? Um, and I'm a product of that, but I kind of kept to the same concepts that had gotten me to that point where younger guys trying to break in, there's just, there's no opportunity. So they had to make an opportunity. Well, what's your skill set? Well, they start in construction and they they become proficient at moving a little dirt and, and being artistic with a piece of equipment. And that opened the door for them. And that was their expression. That's the value they brought. And, you know, there's a lot of talented guys out there that kind of followed that that um, entry into the profession. And, um, you know more power to them. I mean, they figured out a way to do it and they're doing great. Um, maybe I could, uh, I could be slightly critical in the sense that maybe some of those guys haven't been exposed to the, the, the kind of, um, uh, project challenges that, uh, we might otherwise be facing when we do plans and permitting and, you know, right. dealing with clients and developers that could become something that they're not as exposed to. Um, but you know, you, you cut your teeth and you learn and you surround yourself with good people and you work well with, with those people and you'll see it through. So they're going to keep doing well. These guys are very talented and they're doing great work and we're going to see more of it. And then the old guys like me, it's funny, I'm old now. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think there's there's an application for our uh, our the way we practice as yeah. well. Um, and so there's room enough for all of us. And uh, hopefully we just all do good work and take care of our clients. That's that's what it's all about. It is. You know, speaking of, of clients and, and good work, I want to. This is a question I've always wanted to get a real answer to. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the interplay. You, you've designed all over the world. You know, I'll link to your website in the show notes, and your portfolio of of places that you've worked and designed courses is is pretty comprehensive: North, South, East, West, Europe, Asia, you know, United States. So you've you've been in a lot of different environments. How does sort of the environment you, where the course is going to exist really impact your design philosophy or does it? You know, the interplay between, I guess, climate and maybe soil, you know, it, where the architect and the, the turf guys, you know, the, that sort of where those Venn diagrams overlap. How does that kind of play in the, the design process? Because we're here in the transition zone in Kentucky. So, you yeah. know, and, and magical big sand pockets 
are few and far between here. So this has got to be one of the worst places in the U.S. to try to build a golf course and get grass to grow. So I've always wondered if knowing that kind of, you know, that part of the the architecture field, the planning, if that, you know, bleeds into the design and the whole concept when you're preparing a course. You bet. And, and it's not the only factor, um, but the site itself, um, its location, climate, the flora and fauna, um, and then you've got to figure out your client. What what are they trying to achieve? What is the market? What's going to succeed? What's not going to succeed? How are they going to manage it? What is their budget? What are they able to swallow or not swallow? You know, if, if we just look at um, you could have two clients in the state of Kentucky, for example, and both of them have great sites, but one is very capable and the other one is less capable. You've got to make decisions in the design and how it's going to be managed that are going to be, um, you know, on par with the capabilities of that of that owner. And, okay. and you, you could look at it and you'd say, well, there's old stone and then there's, you know, other golf courses. Well, not everybody can do an old stone. That, that doesn't sound like a conversation you necessarily have out loud with your client early in the process. Well, it, or, or is it? Know what you want. And when a client comes to you and says, I want A, B, and C, and I want the best of this, and I want to attract this kind of clientele, and I want to sell homes and memberships that have this sort of value, and um, this I want a certain level of difficulty with the golf course so that I can hold events. Okay, those don't come around very often, and that that we look at a project like that very differently than, for example, when we come in and we do a renovation of a of an existing private club that's sort of mid level, per se, and you know their needs are very different. And their users are very different and their means are very different. So if, if you're not dialing into what their capabilities and goals are, then you're not going to help them very much. You know, if, if my ego gets in the way of doing what's right for that client, then they're not going to be successful. And ultimately, I'm not going to be successful. So I, I think dialing in on you know, not only the site characteristics, but, you know, all these other details that are related to what is going to make that project and that, that client successful. They've got to be part of the part of the recipe. And, uh, you know, we try and do a really good job with that and listen and work very closely and collaborate because Ultimately, it's it's got to work. It's got to succeed, um, and and my ego can't get in the way of that. And yeah, it's not. Sometimes it's not as fun. Like I, I see an opportunity to do something really creative, but I might have to back off of it because they can't manage it, or it's just too much for that membership, or or you know all kinds of little factors. So it's. Uh, 
you know, a, a lot of checks and balances as we sit here in the office and, you know, brainstorm on what we're going to do project to project. Yeah, that I can see how the mind of an architect would just keep spinning in a John Nash, beautiful mind kind of way, trying to do all that calculus Um you know, and and the fact that you might be doing multiple projects at one time—that's, yeah, that's a a fun. Now you've laid out a pretty practical vision, which you just described. You know, the actual business of of course design. You know, the talk a little bit about you know how the, the artistic impulse versus sort of that practicality, judging what the client needs and wants. Um, and sort of what you would think would be strategic interest. You know, the I know in your renovation work you've you've put your hands on a, a lot of different style courses. You're not a, a Ross specialist or a, a McKinsey specialist, something like that. Right. So, do you have kind of an overriding strategic uh, philosophy uh, that you like to bring to it, or is it uh, you come at it from the other direction? No, I, I think. Um Again, that's a that's a good philosophical question to ask. Um, you know, I, I think you come to each project or each opportunity with um, you know a, a, a thought stream of of goals and and, and the way you you want to ultimately have uh, people experience the golf course, but the details that we use to get there may differ very dramatically or widely from one project to another. And again, David, it's just kind of based on, you know, what's appropriate, what's the right balance to fit on this site for this client to achieve those kinds of goals. Um, Ultimately, we want everybody to have a great time. We want them to have fun out there. We want the experience to be memorable. We we want it to be thought-provoking, strategic golf holes that have features that are purposeful and and um, you know have all kinds of angles and things that you've got to negotiate. Uh, I mean, that thought process goes uh, or gets applied on every project. But I guess the, the tools that we use to accomplish those things can vary, you know, very differently. They, they can be broad and how, how we get, um, get, uh, things accomplished can be very different across the board. Gotcha. Well, for those listeners that haven't, played a, a, a course that drew has worked on that he does it very well uh, keen run uh, old the one the courses here in Kentucky that I've played that you've worked on I love the tee shots at keen you know old stone has some features that you don't find anywhere else kind of in the mid-south uh, you know even pers- persimmon with the exception of 15 at on big blue at the University Club I don't know if you worked on that renovation project uh, the internal out of bounds they've stuck on us there. Uh, that that's a personal not favorite. Um, but otherwise, I think the courses you know we we have so many courses here that were kind of thrown together and built by contractors in the the 50s and 60s and and even into the 70s and 80s to to see one that has some real what I like to, what I would call some real 
you know strategic intent or some real architectural features it's it's always refreshing and and so uh, i'm not wearing a hat this morning but i do tip tip my cap to you on on those um you, Thanks. you know you've gotten some good some good coverage um on one of your new projects your pine hills project up in wisconsin yeah people can yeah. read about you know there's a, a nice little blurb uh interview in in the a asc oh i'm there society of architects uh publication what has what brought you to that project and what kind of makes that course or that land so special up there because that's an interesting project for, for as an outside observer it, it is and it's a little bit different than uh, the the typical reason why i get hired I mean, the, the intent there isn't to come in and do a, a, a big, extensive master plan and, and um, that ultimately results in a big renovation effort. That is just not what they're about, and for good reason, because that golf course is already really, really good. Um, you know, it, it, it was um, originally designed by Harry Smead. Nobody knows who the hell Harry Smead is. He might have had some affiliation with Langford and Moreau, but that's, you know, not not very defined. Um, you know, it's right down the road from Lawsonia. Not not too far from Lawsonia. And and very bold like Lawsonia is, but maybe more naturally bold and less steam shovel. Um, it, it, but there's some parallels between the golf courses. Um, but getting back to how I got involved, I mean, Ron Force had been working there for years and years and, and had guided them very well. And they just made little, little strategic improvements over time. Um, I don't know if they, they were great with him, but I think what they, felt like they needed internally was just a new set of eyes, a, a fresh perspective. It was just sort of time to shake things up. And, and so um, the, a few of the members, and including the superintendent, had become familiar with some of the work that I'd done in the Chicago area. And I, I kind of hooked up with the superintendent one day playing golf at Lasonia, and we got to talking. And I guess I made an impression good enough to earn a phone call. Um, and I got a chance to go up and talk to him and look at this golf course. And when I saw it the first time, I was shocked. I just couldn't believe somehow this place had escaped my vision. How do I not know about this golf course? Mm -hmm. It was that good. Uh, I was blown away. And so, uh, you know, the more I talked with them, I think we established that I understood them. I got it. I understood where they wanted to go. Um, they don't want heavy hands there. They just want good guidance. They just want to make um, very precise refinements that make their experience better. And I guess ultimately we we understood one another and I proved to be a good fit for them. So they selected me. And but but again, it's a very different sort of arrangement than we typically have. I mean, it, it's it's not cranking out plans and doing a bunch of big heavy work. It's it, it's just very thoughtful touches and and helping guide them into the next twenty years. You know, given where the the market is, but 
and you know the way land and is being consumed and the the fate of golf courses do you think that may become a trend going forward you know I, i'm sure many architects would love to go in and and just get their hands dirty and you know kind of put their stamp on things but um kind of in that mid-level sure. or upper end club do you think that's the the model going forward perhaps or, or at least well, part it could of it? be for, it could be for some I mean, it, there, there's a lot of golf facilities out there that they they need help. I mean, they need some work to be done in order to make them live longer, per se. So that means you kind of have to have a little heavier hand um, to get them in position to to go on living. Um, while others, they don't need a lot, and why, why beat up something that's perfectly good? They just need somebody to kind of hold their hand and lead them and keep them from themselves, you know, keep, yeah. help them make good decisions so that that golf course does continue living on and, and is as good as it can possibly be. So I, I think there's lots of them out there. I, I, I get a little myth sometimes that the, the so-called great golf courses and, in the U.S., you know, they hire a big name architect to come in and do a renovation. And like, well, hardly anything needs to be done sometimes. <laughs> and yet, it gets blown up in a magazine like they're they're doing something special. I, don't get me wrong; there's a lot of really good work that needs to be done and is getting done. But sometimes I'm just like, wow. Well, you know, why are you going to hire the big name architect unless you can let them blow it up, right, <laughs> make a right, spectacle right. of it? But you know, <laughs> there's different levels of how you use your expertise, and and um, you know, you're just kind of hopeful that the architect that gets hired is is one that's going to be sensitive to what that golf course really needs, and um, hopefully, hopefully that happens, and when we get the chance to be be in position and work with a club that we do think that way and we make the right decisions. At least I hope I do. I mean that it's on my mind, so at least we're we're uh, you know we're, we're on the right track. Hopefully. Well, I, I think it, it it must be refreshing to to walk into a situation where you're you're dealing with a course that you're genuinely excited about what's already there. That you know as opposed to kind of keeping the quiet parts inside. That that's got to be a nice experience every once in a while. Um, uh, it is fun. I love going see, to see a golf course that I have never seen before. And you're in there to talk with uh, leadership about what they ought to do. And it's fun when you get on a piece of property or a golf course that's already in operation and you see things that they don't see. And that's really fun. And, and I had a meeting like that a number of weeks ago and I didn't know this course existed basically. And I set foot on property and they kind of had some ideas of things that they'd like to do. And I said, okay, well, that's good. But did you think of this, you know, and, and you show them a different way to look and they're like, wow, you know, that that's Eureka. Why did we not think of that? And I'm like, well, that's, that's, why I'm here. It's, uh, I want to help you make this as good as it can be. And it's really fun, you know, to work with people and to inspire them and to get them to see things that they didn't see. And 
then hopefully you have the chance to actually do that work, you know, make that improvement and um, make them more successful, make them have more fun. That's what we're here for. Do you find there are three or four things that consistently you see that a super or a, a membership may not see, or is it what you're talking about? Just something different at, at each course generally. Oh, I think it can be pretty different from place to place, David. Um, you know, we're, we're always trying to make golf courses more fun, more enjoyable, um, easier to manage. And we want the golf course to have a stronger identity by virtue of what we've done to it than what it had before. We want the golf course to keep living. And so, yeah, there's there's a whole uh, recipe for things to look for to help that happen. But, you know, each each project, each site, each each opportunity is a little bit different in the way that we interpret those those uh, recipe items or those ingredients. And we just try and apply them so they fit that particular opportunity. Gotcha. Um, wanted to make sure I mentioned congratulations. You've been nominated to the board of the ASGCA. Um, I forgot that, right? You've got a term coming up starting start this year or? Um, I do. It is an honor, and I just couldn't – I wasn't able to shirk it. Um, <laughs> I just a membership chairman, and, you know, that, that can be a, a pretty heavy – uh, responsibility. And we did a lot of things, uh, with regards to membership while I was the, on that committee and, 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 uh, leading that, that committee. But, um, yeah, I guess my time has come to exit one committee and go to another. And, um, yeah, to be a, a governor for the society is, is quite an honor. And, um, in fact, I just had a conference call um, with the society a couple of days ago and Nathan Crace was on the call and he, he's coming on at the same time as I am. And, and, uh, so we're pretty excited about it. It, it you know, it, it's a step towards ultimate leadership of that, that organization. And I'm proud to be a part of it. And I think we're, uh, we're doing some, some big things in, in the golf industry together. And, and that's pretty special. I would imagine. And you mentioned Nathan, and, and I wanted to discuss him briefly because you and he were the only two architects that I'd ever heard pre-Sheep Ranch. You know, the, the bunkerless Sheep Ranch out on the Oregon coast is all the rage right now. But I had heard you two kind of put forth an idea of a, a bunkerless course or, you know, not a, a traditional sand bunker course. Um Right. And can you just flush that out a little bit? Because I, I love that idea. My, my premise for this is I've been to Scotland. I've been to the Lynxland and the bunkers, you know, the natural evolution from little sheep dens getting out of the wind. OK, that makes sense. Those pockets of sand. OK, you bring it to this. You bring design to this country out on Long Island and on the East Coast. You know, Chicago, I guess, was an early, early course, too. But, you know, nice sand-filled bunkers don't fit in the flat heartlands of, you know, the clay base of Kentucky or the, the you know, the red hills of Georgia, so to speak. Um, so talk to me a little bit about this alternate concept uh, of maybe you can get away with designing an interesting and strategic course 
without a bunch of bunkers that look really pretty in the photography brochures. Yeah, yeah, no, it it is a. Uh, I, I don't know that it's an original concept by me or Nathan necessarily. Um, it, I've wanted to do this for, oh God, it, since early on in my career. So it's not something uh, new on my mind. It's just been a frustration that I can't get anybody to bite. And But I guess what, what really started it um, was – you know, working with clients and listening to them as I renovate a golf course, for example. And this whole notion that, well, if you remove bunkers or you remove trees or you make fairways wider, et cetera, et cetera, you're making the golf course too easy. I am so tired of having people tell me you're making the golf course too easy. Uh, it, it just is, it's a fallacy, you know. A, when I give you more room to hit the ball, I'm giving you more room to miss. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm giving you more opportunity to go offline. And you don't know it right away, but you'll damn sure know it when you hit your approach into the green if I've done my job. So as, as I've encountered these, um, th- these challenges from clients regarding bunkers and trees and water and all this artificial stuff that – you know, we see on many, many golf courses every day. I just got thinking, you know, I would love to just one time do a golf course that didn't have any of that. No water on the golf course, no trees on the golf course, no created, you know, man-made bunkers. Mm -hmm. And if I could get away with it, I'd mow the whole thing at one height, one height of, of turf. It may be except for the greens and the rest of it would just all be landforms. And your job is to, to navigate and find the best angles to attack these golf holes using only the, the, um, the landforms as your guide and, and the angles into the greens and the angles of the landforms out in the fairway. You you want to find the flattest lie, the best view, the best angle into a green, have at it. I don't need bunkers to do that. I don't need trees to do that. I don't need rough to do that uh, or water or anything else. All I need is the ground. That That's what's going through my head. And I just love to be able to express that. You know, have nine holes, have six holes, have 18 holes. I don't care. It'd just be fun to do that on a piece of ground. Maybe, David, where you don't have resources otherwise. Maybe it's a dull piece of ground and and there is no water and there is no trees. And otherwise, the, the piece of ground has very little value to most. But we could certainly find a way to give it value. And it could be very unique and and a hell of a design expression um, and, and maybe kind of uh, have a reference finally to to throw at some of these yahoos that tell me I'm making golf courses too easy and say, well, OK, go play this then. And you, t- you come back, come back and tell me what you think. I will personally attest to that as close as I've seen to that concept, uh, you know, on this side of the pond, the outward 
the old course, the bunkers are you know used as markers, and there's several famous ones you don't want to get into, but kind of the monochromatic element there, and it's all about angles there. Um, it, yeah. it gets to that, but I played. Um, we went to Force Dunes for our guys' trip last year, and the loop is wide corridors, you know, one height of mode. Yes, there are some bunkers, but I have never been so uncomfortable on tee boxes as I was there because there was no there was no real set defined. You know, you had an 80 yard wide playing corridor or more, but there was no you know rarely was there a fairway bunker that you could see. There right. was there was no cart path, so there was nothing for your eye to fix on to say, okay, aim here and you know play, allow for your miss. Um, that. That's why that I think you're, when I heard you tell Derek about that concept and your interview on Feed the Ball, that really clicked with me because I, I I remember how challenging that was. You know, it's not an exceptionally long or particularly difficult golf course, but that 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 made it difficult. The lack of definition, just having to really look at the landforms because you don't have a big horizon there. Um, yeah, never been so uncomfortable with a with a club in my hand on the tee box <laughs> as having you know nothing to aim at in that great vast of you know just just landforms um right nothing's jumping out at you that just completely says well you got to be one side or the the other or uh, you got to hit it here or there you kind of have to study it and figure it out and you might not even figure it out the first or even the second time you play it but you do it wrong a few times and you figure out well i'm not doing this right i'm i'm not taking the right angle. I'm not taking the right approach. And when you figure it out, you know, it's like solving a puzzle. It's kind of fun as a golfer. If you're a cerebral type and you're open to that sort of challenge when you play golf, um, that that's sort of magical in my mind, it, you know. Uh, Very much uh, so. It's another thing to be led along and to have everything very defined and bunkers that kind of lead you through and rough and trees. I mean, that's a style of golf course too. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. We've all worked on, on a lot of them and played a bunch of them and they're great, but I just see this as a different expression, uh, a really pure expression and one that I could just finally use to make a point, you know, uh, when I do take out a bunker, I'm doing it with a purpose in mind where I take out a tree or a line of trees. It's, it's not because we don't like the bunker. We don't like the trees. It's because we can see something beyond what the golfer can see. And I can get you to do things that you don't know you're going to do. And, and that's, that's part of the fun for me is to understand strategy and understand how, you know how to use what's in front of me to to get a, a certain result for the golf hole and that's fun that's all we're trying to do here and that's that's what's guiding my my thought process so we'll see maybe one of these days uh somebody will call me up and say hey i got a really nice piece of ground that we can't do anything with but let's talk about that that uh bunkerless waterless treeless golf course you want to do let's talk you know that'd be that'd be a blast 
Well, don't worry. I've got I've got it earmarked. When I cash that winning Powerball ticket, you and I are going to go hunt for a nice piece of land where that will work. That will be. I've already cleared it with the wife. That will be that year's little spending spree. Oh man, I got to meet her. <laughs> I don't know what she did to convince her of such silly things, but let's do it. There's always a trade-off, and you don't want to know. <laughs> All right. Perfect. I'll leave that to you guys. Well, Drew, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. I think that's a good place to to leave it. Um, really, thank you for talking about the parts that of the business that aren't in the manuals, that's not in uh, a course called America or any of the other you know classics in the, the books. Uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time, and I'll even forgive you for that that Cubs neon light in the background uh, as a as a. <laughs> Growing up in Western Kentucky as a dedicated, lifelong St. Louis Cardinals fan, uh, you know what? You're, 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 the conversation is worth even putting up with that. Wow, wow. Well, I, I, I knew you were a Cardinal fan, and and we come from that that neck of the woods. We're either Cardinal fans or we're Cub fans, or some are Cincinnati. But what I could never figure out is why Cardinal fans hated the Cub fans so much for so long. Because we were the perennial doorstep every year. Like, you beat our brains out no matter what. It, it's just we didn't care, and we'd sit in the fan, or we'd sit in the stands and drink beer and have fun. I just think we're having more fun than Cardinals fans, and it made them mad. <laughs> so. I think you're very much on. We, we are a very serious fan base, and I think you know that. It may be too serious for our own good sometimes. Um, well, it's a good dynamic. It's a great rivalry. And in in 16, we finally got got what we wanted for so many years. And so that was a lot of fun. So, you know, it's back to work now. We'll, we'll see what happens. But, uh, yeah, sorry about the light. I've been having trouble with the neon. And, and so I have to jiggle it around once in a while and get it on. And I didn't. I forgot that it was on, actually. I, I turned it on this morning just to see if I could get it rolling, and it, it turned on, so I left it on. So there you go. It wasn't to poke fun at a Cardinal fan. That's uh, it, for sure. it, You know what? It, it took you long enough to get that one. Celebrate it. Milk that, milk that World Series title for all it's worth. I, I've well, got no problem letting you have your one. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. No, so. and it, thanks for uh, having me on. I, I appreciate what you do. You know, you're really passionate about golf, and um, you know, it, I, I follow you on on social media, and it's it's just fun to see how inspired and passionate you are for for the game of golf, and and um, you know, you have fun with it. You you have a good perspective, and and you appreciate what it is, and. You know, sometimes we see a lot of serious stuff get posted and stuff that's controversial and way too opinionated. And I just find your approach very uh, refreshing and practical. And you truly appreciate the game for what it is. And it's it's a recreation. We're out there to have fun. And it's it teaches us life lessons. And um, you appreciate good architecture, too. And, and so I. I you know, just I appreciate what you're doing, and I hope you continue to do it and have fun. Well, you're very kind to say all of that. Thank you, Drew. I really, I really do appreciate that. But you yeah. do good, you do good work. Uh, keep doing good work. Hope to see more of it. Uh, and for everything that 2020 hath wrought for us, here's hoping. You know, we we keep busy and and the game stays and it gets and stays in a good place moving forward. 
Yeah, we're golf's golf's healthy right now. We're doing fine, and uh, hopefully that continues to be the case. And um, there, there's a lot of work being done. So hopefully we come out of this on the other side, and we're even in better shape. So we'll see. You know, I'll probably cut this out in post, but that's something. It's interesting how this year has evolved. When you know, we went to the lockdown in, in March and April, I thought, wow, this is a great time for well-capitalized clubs to, to go in and, and you know, do those projects that they've always wanted to do. And then all of a sudden, you know, everyone around here is are doing record rounds. Uh, you know, I had the, the guy, the manager from Champions, Trace, Keen Trace, on a couple months ago, and he said their year over year is just through the roof. You can't get tee times. It's it's almost like the, the turn of the century again as far as volume. So all of a sudden, <laughs> can you can you really renovate when there's such a demand to uh, – for people to be on the golf course. So it's been a weird, weird year. It has, it has, but I guess the good thing for golf is that, uh, you know, it, it has been one of those activities that you, you can for all practical purposes, go out and enjoy uh, during this whole thing. And, you know, being outside and being distanced from one another is pretty easy to accomplish out on a golf course. Um, one thing I don't like to see is four golf court carts in a group. Um, that that's kind of a bummer. I'd, I'd love to see people take advantage and and walk more or get introduced, reintroduced to walking. That would probably be good. Good for the golf course. Good good for the heart. You know, good right. for our our bodies and mind. But um, you know, the, there's a lot of damage being done with all the golf court carts right now you, you think about it and not only are the rounds up but we have double the amount of cart traffic because there's you know there's four carts instead of two in every group if, if it's a foursome so you know the poor superintendents as if they didn't have enough to deal with um you know to have all that compaction and all that wear and tear caused by golf carts that's that's a little bit of a concern, but look, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll handle it. Um, you know, hopefully more people will walk. But you know, even if they don't, it, it's good for the game that people are out there playing, and it, it's a healthy thing. I think initially in the spring, a lot of people were walking. Um, they were either forced to by the club, or they you know out of their own concerns, they were were doing the walking. And now that the the mercury is up on the thermometer people are are kind of fading back into old habits i'm a i'm an avid walker i don't you know I, I don't guilt people into walking but you know i've got my little push cart that was my 40th birthday present to myself last year so awesome. I, feel like I can walk you know um the old i don't know if you remember the old campbell house course here pick a dome yeah. here in lexington yeah. i love that course because i can play from shade to shade you know in hot weather you can you know it's kind of tree-lined parkland now and so you can you know, I don't spend a lot of time in the dead middle of the fairway, so I can protect myself on a hot, sunny day, get in get in those shadows, and stay there. Um, that's but, a that's an honest admission there. Yeah, I, I can appreciate that. Uh, it's a little, you know, Kearney looks a little different on a ninety degree and you know fifty you know high humidity day. Um, not not a, yeah. a lot of places to hide. So maybe if the weather cools, if we're still in this situation, people I've seen people walking that haven't walked in a long time. I don't know if they've fallen back in love with it as much as they have being out on the golf course. Um, yeah. So, but everyone we can pick off, everyone we can get out of that cart for an additional round is a victory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
they've got choices and you know hopefully they just make the best choice for them and uh, they find a way to go out and have fun out there that's that's what we're trying to do Drew thank you so much I really appreciated this this was a fun conversation it came through to you that Drew is one of the good guys in the golf course business. I can't thank him enough for taking the time to talk with me from his office in Toledo, and I certainly look forward to continuing that conversation with him soon. Hey, thanks for stopping by this episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. As always, I hope you liked what you heard here, and that you'll subscribe to the podcast through your favorite feed, and maybe share an episode with your friends or blast out a show link on your social media accounts. If you want to support the show in lieu of cryptocurrency donations, please feel free to leave a rating over on iTunes. That way you can say you knew about this show back when. And if you didn't like what you heard here, sorry about that. I can't do anything about it now, but I will try to do better next time. And I hope you will join me again next time here on the Blind Shots Podcast. Most importantly, hope that you're being safe and smart and keeping sane out there. We will get through this. Someday what 2020 hath wrought will end. But until then, when you're playing golf, do decide to go for it and take dead aim. There's that great line in The Hunt for Red October, you know, he misses the piece of fishing. I find that on the golf course now, but I remember, yeah. I still remember it, you know, being on the lake, being on the, the river.